morning, everybody. Um, yeah, lots of smiles, lots of nods, lots of amens. That would be great. Um, yeah, I'm Ross. Um, I'm, I'm one of the mission group leaders here, um, along with my wife Emily and Joel and Karis Topham. We lead the West Leeds Mission Group. Um, thanks, darling. <laughs> Sign of support. Um, when, I, when I was a teenager, I tried to get really into sailing. Um, and I didn't do a very good job, but something I did was to go to various different sailing camps. And one I went to for the first time. And when I arrived, I realized that you are, you're assigned to a boat and to a crew. And you are also given a rank. And because it was my first year there, I was given the lowest rank of bilge. And during the week, one of the activities is you, your crew, will race against all of the other crews around a set circuit. And I'm proud to say that our team was victorious. For the first time, for the first year I was there, we managed to win. But reality is I, I was the bilge and couldn't really take that much credit for the actual victory. But nonetheless, it was fantastic to be on the winning team. And this morning, the passage that we're looking at in Genesis 14 is all about being on the winning team and how you act as a member of that So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Genesis 14. The words should go on the screen. We're going to read through it and then get stuck in. At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedaleomer king of Elam, Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Bersha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Admah, Shemabur king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zor. <laughs> All these latter kings joined forces in the Valley of Sidon, that is the Salt Sea. For twelve years they had been subject to Kedaleoma, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Kedaleoma and the kings allied with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzites in Ham, in Ham, the Emites in Shavakirathaim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran, near the desert. This is a great passage to be <laughs> Then they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admat, the king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zor, marched out, marched out and drew up their battle lines again in the valley of Sidon against those kings, Four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and when the king of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled to the hills. The four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions, since he was living in Sodom. A man who had escaped came and reported this to Abraham the Hebrew. Now Abraham was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshkol and Anna, all of whom were allied with Abraham. When Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abraham divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and the other people. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedaleoma and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. 
Then Melchizedek came, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me. To Anna, Eshkol and Mamre, let them have their share. What a passage. What a great story. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of trying to tell somebody a story or or recap some events and your your audience just completely misses the point of what you're trying to tell them or what you're trying to show them. But I was on holiday with my wife once and whilst in a shop I turned round and my, my shirt got caught on one of the shelves in the shop and pulled off one of the buttons. And so I picked the button up and I sort of walked over to my loving wife, Emily, and sort of gestured towards the problem area And she looked at me and she saw what she saw and she said, oh, Ross, you have put a bit of weight on this holiday. (laughs) She thought I'd got quite large and it had pinged off on its own. In other words, she completely missed the point. And the danger with Genesis 14 is that we read through this and we just see it as a bunch of kings fighting it out for power. But that would be completely missing the point. The passage starts with these four kings led by this guy, Kedileoma. And they march south and they take over a number of cities. They have peace for 12 years, and then eventually the southern cities decide that they're going to rebel. And they have a year of rebellion until Kedileoma and his colleagues march south again, and they retake control of the city, including Sodom. And that's where Abraham comes into it, because in the previous chapter, Abraham and Lot had split up, and Lot had taken the best bit of land that he could see for himself, and he had sent Abraham in the opposite direction. So when Kedileoma and his colleagues come in, they assume that Lot is a a citizen of the city, and they take him off along with everybody else. And then Abraham hears about this, and he goes off and he rescues his nephew. So on the face of it, it is all about fighting and victories in the simplest sense. But after all the fighting dies down, this guy Melchizedek shows up, And he comes along and reminds Abraham and Lot and the king of Sodom and in turn us that what is actually happening here is that God is in control, that God is working, that he is sovereign and we shouldn't be forgetting that. So we're going to look again at this chapter and we're going to see three sub-stories if you like. One is a story of activity, one is a story of victory and one is a story of humility. If you've got your Bibles open on verse 14 of chapter 14... We're told when Abraham heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and he went in pursuit as far as Dan. So as soon as Abraham heard the news that his nephew had been captured, he sprang into action. Now, of course, it seems relatively natural. I'm sure if any of us here today heard that a relative was in trouble, we wouldn't hesitate in going to help them out in any way we could, but this wasn't a a particularly easy undertaking. Abraham had 318 men, but he was hugely outnumbered, 
And not only that, but he was outnumbered by a force who had already proven that they were rather good at fighting. And before Abraham could even get to the fight, he had to travel a hundred or so miles by foot with his army. So it's looking like a relatively unlikely win for him. And when you add to this that Abraham and Lot weren't on the best of terms, remember, Lot had rejected Abraham, taken the best bit of land for himself, and sent Abraham in the opposite direction. This was a risk that Abraham didn't have to take. God hadn't specifically told Abraham to do this. Abraham's calling, after all, was as a father-type figure. He was called to be a blessing, not a warrior. But he went. He went quickly. He took the opportunity to help. He took the opportunity to serve where he could. And the challenge to us is to do the same. There are still plenty of things wrong in this world, plenty of injustices going on that I'm sure you all know about on big scales and on small scales. There's plenty of places for us to serve. And some of you may say that you have a specific calling, whether that's to Canada or anything else, to to your place of work maybe, or to work with a specific people group. But many of us here today, we may say we don't feel a specific calling. We don't know what our calling is. We don't know if we have a specific calling. And we say that we are willing to hear from God. We are willing to wait for him to give us that instruction, to give us that direction, to send us somewhere to help and to do and to speak. And we will wait for him to do that. And that is a fantastic thing to do. But we have to remember, waiting on God, if you like, isn't a standing still activity. It's an activity of action. Think of a waiter, for example. If you go to a nice restaurant, your waiter will spend some time stood quietly in the corner waiting for a specific instruction. But for the majority of your meal, that waiter will be running here, there and everywhere, giving you out menus, taking away dirty plates, bringing out the next course, filling up your glasses. In other words, a waiter's job is full of activity. Abraham was a man of activity, and the Bible encourages us to be the same. In 1 Peter 1, we're told to prepare our minds for action. And Paul writes to the church in Philippians, he says, Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. The emphasis is put it into practice, act on it, do something with it. As Christians today, we're called to have an active faith. And as I said, in today's world, there are plenty of places to serve. There are plenty of ways to help. And it could be an entire preaching series on how to serve, on how to help. You can talk in your mission groups how you can be more active as a group. You can talk in your triplets how you can be more active as individuals. The important thing is, is that as Christians today, as members of God's church, we are active and we have an active faith. Abraham had an active faith. And because he was involved in God's activity, he was a man of victory. And we've already read the passage. We know that Abraham, despite the odds, goes and rescues Lot, wins him back. It seems that victory almost wasn't the question. Abraham's active response to hearing about the capture, coupled with God's blessing on him, meant that he could be sure of his success. And then this mysterious figure, Melchizedek, he turns up in verse 18. We're going to look at him in a minute. But he blesses Abraham. And in this great sentence, he congratulates Abraham for a victory won, 
but he also reminds him whose victory it really was. He says in verse 19, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, Melchizedek is someone we don't know a great deal about. Um, The the New Testament uh, likens him to Jesus. But in Genesis 14, we're told two things about him, that he is the king of Salem and that he is a priest of God Most High. Now, as the king of Salem, he's in charge of a city. And it's thought that Salem as a city developed and grew over time and eventually became Jerusalem. You get the emphasis? I've been practicing that all week. (laughs) Um, So Melchizedek is the king of a city which is central or becomes central to the Jewish people and the Jewish faith. And on two occasions, Jesus is referred to as king of the Jews. When he's a boy, the Magi come from the Far East. They go to Herod and they ask him, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? And then right at the end of Jesus' time on earth, As he's being executed on the cross, he's done so under a sign that reads, Jesus, King of the Jews. Now, as King of Salem, Melchizedek also has another title. Salem can be translated as peace. So Melchizedek is also the ruler of peace. And when the birth of Jesus is foretold in Isaiah, he is referred to as the Prince of Peace, which is a lovely piece of alliteration, but easily translated as ruler of peace. So we've got Melchizedek on one hand, who is the the king of Salem, the king of a city central to the Jewish people. And we've got Jesus as king of the Jews. We've got Melchizedek as the ruler of peace, and we've got Jesus as the ruler of peace. Now you may be seeing a pattern here. Melchizedek is also described as a priest of God Most High. And priests in the Old Testament, in the Jewish tradition... They were there to offer sacrifice and worship to God on behalf of the community. And the priests in the Jewish tradition all come from the tribe that are the Levites. And the first priest was a guy called Aaron. The problem is the Levites and Aaron don't yet exist when Genesis 14 is happening. So how can Melchizedek be a priest of God? Well, the Bible is a great book, if you didn't know, and gives us these sorts of answers. In Hebrews, right in the New Testament, towards the end of the Bible, we're told about two priesthoods. The writer tells us, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the law was given to the people, why was there still need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. Now this is talking about Jesus, referring to Jesus coming. It's saying, in other words... Jesus is a priest who is set apart. He's separated from the Levitical priesthood. He's not a priest who points towards the law like the Levites did. Jesus is a priest who points directly to God. And that's what Melchizedek does for Abraham in Genesis 14. Jesus came to us as a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but the sacrifice he was offering was unique. The sacrifice he was offering was himself in our place. And because of that sacrifice for us, we share in his victory. Now we all experience little victories in our lives. Maybe it's the the job interview that went well, or the exam that was passed, or the promotion, or just that, that great holiday that was just perfect in every single way. The challenge to us is when things go well in life, 
Who do we give glory to? Who do we give thanks to? Because all good things come from God. So we should be giving thanks to God. Earlier this week, um, I had a nightmare of a telephone call with a client of mine. He was making a ridiculous decision and it was my job to try and advise him differently and change his mind. And we were going back and forth and back and forth and nothing was budging. And I finished the call and I said, Chris, take the evening, think about it and we'll talk again tomorrow. You can give me your final answer. But truth be told, I wasn't expecting much. And so the next evening I sat down and I was writing this sermon and I was writing this section on victory and who do we give thanks to when things go well in our lives. And Chris calls me and he's changed his mind. He's done a complete U-turn. And he's going with the course of action that I suggested. I hung up the phone and what do I do? I sat down and I give myself a good pat on the back. (laughs) Well done, Ross. Great sales, great negotiation, brilliant business skills there. And then I sit down and I get back into this sermon that I'm writing. (laughs) And the pat on the back turns into a slap on the face as as I realise how easy it is for us to not give the glory that is due to God for those things that go well in our lives. But then you get the question, well, what about when things don't go well? What about if Chris hadn't changed his mind? What happens when you don't get the job interview or whatever? What happens when our best hopes for Wimbledon get knocked out? (laughs) Never mind. Well, the Bible tells us that our fight, unlike Abraham's, isn't against four northern kings. Good job, the Scots are brutal. (laughs) Our, Our fight is not against flesh and blood, it says in Ephesians 6. Our fight is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, our fight is a spiritual fight. And the wonderful truth, the fantastic hope that we hold to as Christians is that fight has already been won for us. That fight is already victorious. Jesus, as he was dying on the cross... Under the sign, Jesus, King of the Jews, he shouted out in a loud voice, it is finished. It is done. The work of saving this world, saving humanity, bringing us back to God is completed. The job is done. So when we feel like we're losing those little battles of life, when the things seem to be going wrong, we can look to Christ and we can see that the battle for eternal life has already been won. And that's the hope that we hold to. One character in the Old Testament had a great life. His name was Job. And it all fell apart in front of him. But what was his response? It was to say, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So whatever our circumstances in life, our challenge is to remember the victory won for us and to praise God for it. We should be a people of activity, confident of victory. But because that victory was won for us and not by us, We need to learn from Abraham's lesson of humility. At the end of chapter 14, we are told, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, Lest you should say, I've made Abraham rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. The end of this chapter contrasts these two individuals. On one hand, you've got Melchizedek, who is giving glory to God, who is pointing Abraham to God. And on the other hand, you've got the king of Sodom, 
who is only interested in taking back power, and in exchange he's willing to offer Abraham riches. But Abraham rejects it. He rises above this offer and gives his glory to God. He offers Melchizedek a tenth of everything. Remember what Abraham has just witnessed in the last couple of chapters of Genesis. His nephew Lot saw the best bit of land. He made an economic business case decision and he took it for himself. And that didn't turn out too well for him. Abraham knows firsthand that putting worldly wealth, that putting worldly success above God and his glory will get you nowhere important. Now, it's nothing new for someone to stand at the front of a church and encourage the congregation not to put worldly wealth above God and his glory. Many of us, I'm sure, know the verse in Matthew, don't store up treasures for yourselves on earth, but store up treasures for yourselves in heaven where moth and rust don't decay, where thieves won't steal it. But the verse that comes after that is verse 21, and that's the important part for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The point that Jesus is making here in Matthew 6, and the point Abraham is making to the king of Sodom, is that wealth isn't important. Wealth isn't the key. The key is where the heart is. And because Abraham's heart was primarily for the glory of God, because Abraham's primary role in life was to glorify God, he rejected the offer of wealth. Now, Abraham was already a wealthy man. It didn't matter. His heart was for the glory of God. Some of you may know or have heard of the Lang Trust or the Lane Trust. It was created by Sir John Lang, who was a very, very wealthy businessman. Um, And he was also a Christian. He was a Scot. He moved down into England and created a number of businesses that were very successful in the construction industry. He was knighted for his services to the construction industry. And he lived a very frugal life. And when Sir John died, a team of lawyers went in to work out how much his estate was worth and who was going to benefit from it and how much each beneficiary should get as part of the will. And the country was amazed when the lawyers published their findings that Sir John's worth totaled £371. Because before he died, Sir John had given everything away. Now, I'm not saying you need to leave here and give everything away before you die. But this is a fantastic example of Christian humility. It's putting God's glory above our own. It's lifting him up and not ourselves. And it's saying our primary role in life is to glorify him. In other words, Christian humility is boasting in God and not ourselves. As one hymn puts it, I will not boast in anything... No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. That's Christian humility. So Genesis 14, it's not just a chapter of fighting kings, battling it out for expansion. What we see in Genesis 14 is a man who lives actively, confident of victory, and he's walking humbly with his God. And so if we're a Christian here this morning, the challenge to us is to do the same. How do our actions humbly boast of Jesus' victory? How do what we do in life show that we are on God's victorious team? And if you're not a Christian this morning, well, why not? 
there's a victorious team. There's a team that you can be part of that has the victory and we would love to be your teammates. And if you want to hear more about that, well, you do want to hear more about that because it's worth knowing more about, come and chat to us. Come and chat to me or Emily or Matt or anybody else because we would love to explain to you what it means to be part of God's victorious team. We're going to stand and sing, so I'm going to invite the band back up. Let me pray first. Do you want to stand to your feet? Father God, we give you thanks for who you are. We give you thanks for your word to us and for what it explains to us. Father, we give you thanks for the actions of your son dying for us on the cross, meaning that we could share in that victory over death and sin. Father, we want to claim that victory again for ourselves this morning. We want to align ourselves with that victory in your purposes, Lord. We pray that you will motivate us to be a people of action in this world, doing your work, being a part of your plan, confident of the victory that we share in, and walking humbly in with you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen.